You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am really honored and excited to be joined by Ryan Brandt and John Frederick, authors of the new book, Spiritual Formation for the Global Church. This is a really timely book, and I believe that you will be challenged, encouraged, and blessed by this conversation. So we're really glad that you're here with us today. Now, before we dive into that conversation, I wanted to share just a little bit with you about Patreon. Patreon is a space where we offer exclusive content, series on Revelation, Psalms, Advent. We do guided practices, live events, and more. So this is a space where for just a few dollars a month, you can gain access to some really great content while also helping to support this podcast and support this ministry. So if you've been blessed by these podcast episodes, if you have been blessed by the guided practices that we offer, by the interviews, and you would like to see it continue and reach even more people with ways to go deeper in their relationship with God, we would love if you would consider checking out that link to Patreon below. Come support us for a few dollars a month, keep the mic on, and gain access to some really great content. But with that said, friends, here is my interview with Ryan Brandt and John Frederick. Ryan and John, welcome to the Rua Space podcast. So great to uh, get to have both of you on at the same time. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, good to have you, Phil. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Well, can you guys introduce a little bit of, of who each of you are? We're, of course, today talking about spiritual formation for the global church, a really neat book. Uh, but, but who are you and, and how did you guys meet and start to put this together? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, I, um, I'm, this is Ryan talking, and I teach Christian history and theology at Grand Canyon University. Uh, which is in Phoenix, Arizona. We're not actually close to the Grand Canyon here. Um, so teaching out in the desert. Um, and yeah, that's really the main thing about me. I have a wife, uh, Laura, and a child, Evelyn. And um, I enjoy astronomy, uh, hiking, man, and gardening. I think those are my three favorite things. I love that. I actually originally went to college for uh, astronomy and physics, so we might have a whole other conversation in the works here. (laughs) That's great. And and John, tell us about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, So Ryan and I uh, were colleagues at Grand Canyon University when I was there. uh, It must have been between 2014 and 2017, uh, and I was working in the Center for Worship Arts. So my background is actually in music and songwriting. I uh, studied that, was full-time in music for many years, had a conversion to the gospel and uh, felt called to ministry and then went through seminary and, and did all that work. So Ryan and I, um, you know, have known each other for a while, taught uh, in the same department. And the, the kind of genesis of this project was um, one of the nice things at, about that period of time at, at GCU was there was just so many people, so many students, so many um you know, uh, colleagues. And, you know, Ryan and I were just walking through the hall one day, Hey man, we should do this. We should do that. Literally going to just get a coffee and then pop off to some, you know, meeting somewhere or or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that's interesting to me is, uh, when you're around people and this can happen in the church as well, an idea comes into mind and it seems like a crazy idea, but then it, it, 
it becomes an, an opportunity to network with people all over the world. I think that's a really exciting thing for me. And uh, so Ryan and I got to kind of dream about that on the way to get coffee and then watch it sort of unfold over the next couple of years, which has been fun, especially since I've moved to Australia and we've been doing this from, uh, you know, overseas and, and all that stuff with people all over the world. It's been a good time. Yeah. 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 Interestingly, um, I'm, I think almost all of the book idea came out in John's office. We were just talking in there. I think it was after a meeting. See, even meetings can lead to good things, like, you know, an administrative sort of like, you know. That one's hard to believe, but I'll trust you. (laughs) It really is. And nothing to do with it. But I was just thinking of this idea. And uh, and then he was thinking of an idea. And it was just, it just developed this relationship. Mostly it was in his, we were right next door to each other. But it was almost always in his office. Just small conversations turning into big ideas. Yeah. I love that because I, I feel like, it's a very timely book. And even the way you're sharing about it coming together, our world is becoming more and more siloed, right? You only see on your social media what you already think and believe, the echo chamber. Our churches are becoming, at least how I've seen it, less diverse in many ways. And the conversation sort of then around spiritual formation, we're only sort of hearing ourselves. And so this jumped off the page to me, the the importance of seeing the diversity of the body of the Christ, the Holy Spirit sort of inviting us to all to to see just the beauty and the wholeness of the body of Christ. And so you guys were able to bring, you know, your own voices to this work, but also these other diverse voices to come together and talk about spiritual formation. So I'll kind of kick this to either one of you, but what was sort of the, you know, for, for people who may not have read this book yet, of course, I hope they will. You can find a link in the description, go pick it up. What was sort of the, the basis of the book, I guess? What do you hoping people are sort of getting to with spiritual formation for the global church? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I think this project is part of a bigger desire. And I know my heart and Ryan's heart and everyone who contributed to this book to move with the technology into a new way of doing theology globally. So uh, the idea that we can't collaborate with someone from the global south um, where, which is, you know, the, the area that is exploding with Christian growth right now, because, oh, they're just so far away and we just can't do that anymore is, is a preposterous idea. And, and it's sort of an old school way of thinking. And I think more and more of us are seeing now that, um, you know, even though the medium is the message and there's technology is not all good, it creates some problems as well. Um, there's, there's an opportunity to do theology together. So part of this is an experiment. And what does that mean to collaborate in a way that diversity isn't just something that we have as sort of a virtue, a, a, an empty virtue that everybody knows is good and that we want, but this sort of undefined. Instead of that, uh, and just you know, citing a scholar that you've never met, what about writing and creating something with them? Uh, and, and this could go not only for the topic of spiritual formation, but really the global communion of the saints can come together and not only speak at each other from across continents, but collaborate diversely with each other in the same, you know, volume. That excites me. And, and I, I look at this as one small beginning and small contribution to what I think is a spirit deep within the heart of Christians everywhere. 
um, to move from these sort of individual silos of sameness into a diversified collaboration. Yeah. 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 That's really well said. I, 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 I thought John would go in that direction and kind of cast that big vision. We both resonate with that completely. I think the book in a more um, zoomed in way was inspired um, just by me sort of pondering and John pondering the state of spiritual formation. And it, it really does tend to have a certain kind of flavor um, and the spiritual formation movement that I'm most familiar with is mostly in the West. It tends to be uh, mostly uh, like just an Anglo theological thing. But this is something that the rest of the globe has been doing. This is something that the history of the church has always cared deeply about. And so writing a book that broadens spiritual formation to a global conversation, uh, getting more diverse vo voices, not just denominationally, but from different continents, different backgrounds, from people that don't think the same way, um, and sort of going down this path and wanting to kind of cast that, that vision. And then, yeah, it leads to even a bigger vision of even more projects to come. Me and John are, uh, we work really well together and I know we're just gonna keep doing that, uh, exactly how that'll look like, you know, only time will tell. But yeah, this is uh, something that we really want to create a way of getting people from across, across the globe to talk together in the same volume, in the same, uh, whatever um, uh, project we're working on. So that this book is kind of the start of that. And I think most people listening would be excited by that and see the, the blessing, the potential in that. So there's sort of two sides I'd like to talk with you about this. And I think you, you, you covered it really well in the book, which I appreciated. But when we're talking about spiritual formation, this idea of becoming more Christ-like, of connecting deeper with God, you know, joining in the life of the Trinity, all, all this type of stuff. There's, of course, when we bring lots of diverse voices to the table, there's always then the question of, of course, we want unity and diversity, but how do we choose where the unity is and where the diversity is? So sort of theologically, biblically, um, wh what then do we say are the places where we stand united? And of course, everyone can maybe answer this question differently, but you guys seem to have a particular way in this book where you said, hey, here's the things we're sort of gonna unite around. So let's talk about where do, where do we unite to kick off a project like this? Yeah, that's a really helpful question. And I think you're exactly right that that's one of the perennial questions. And so I can start it off. I think John would be good at adding on to this, but um, I think both of us would, you know, answer that fundamentally, like what unites us. I think basic Nicene Christians, um, apostolic faith, um, uh, the, the fundamental creeds of the faith. Um, the way that I've always liked to hash it out, and it, it turns out GCU where I work, thinks in a very similar, if not identical way of thinking in terms of first tier, second tier, and third tier issues. And, so those first tier issues are, are what kind of makes Christianity, Christianity. And uh, if you're on a different page on those issues, um, that's okay. It's just, it's gonna be something else than Christianity. 
And so I, I really think the, the essence of Nicaea covers much of that. And I, I think if I recall correctly, we sort of, we didn't really define it this way, but everyone in the book would be united on that. We definitely defined it Trinitarian. Spiritual formation is Trinitarian. And so I would want to start there, but it's, it's, that's a tough question. It, it's, it's, it's an easy question with much more complex answers than sometimes people imagine. Yeah, no, of course. And, and I, and I want to hear from John. I think maybe one, one way to, to think about it would be as you approach people to write the book, what was that, you know, what was that conversation like to say, oh, yes, I, I feel comfortable joining in that conversation, even though I'm going to come from a slightly different perspective? Mm. You know, I, I think that uh, with this particular volume, uh, Phil, the way that we did it was we reached out to people that we knew through networks that we had, that we trusted, who um, we know share in the common faith that the saints have shared at all places and all times everywhere, which is an ancient phrase that's usually traced back to St. Vincent of Lorenz, which is, you know, you can tell what is true Christianity by what is believed at all times and all places by all. Um, anyway, um, when we reached out to the people that we reached out to, we, we knew that they fell within that parameter, but there wasn't a sort of statement of faith. I do think there's a broader agreement um, that actually Catholics and Protestant share and Orthodox as well on what is Holy Scripture? What is the word of God? Uh, and by Protestants, I mean evangelicals, but Protestantism broadly stemming from the Reformation. And I think the interesting thing that I find is that there can be a lot of writing that can benefit the entire Christian church. And one of the things that I'm interested in doing, and I think this would go for many in the volume as well, is, is something that I have composed, is that beneficial, not just to my tribe within the many streams of Orthodox Christianity, but is that beneficial to the other streams as well that I don't particularly belong to, but I want to bless as part of the body of Christ. Exactly. And so my paper, for instance, with my buddy, John, we, we wrote a paper and the original version of that paper I gave in St. Andrews and someone said to me, when, when have you become Catholic? <laughs> and, and I said, I'm not, I just like to refer to Thomas Aquinas, but I, I, I love Catholics. I'm not personally Roman Catholic, but there should be this sort of sense that it's not taboo to engage with um, someone from a different faith tradition within the Orthodox framework that holds to the faith delivered once to the saints. Um, and, and I think the key going forward as people try to continue to do, and other people are doing similar things like this, really is to say as Orthodox Christians, what is the word of God? And how do we understand the Bible to be the word of God? And what you'll find is across evangelical and Protestantism, uh, you know, at one time, you know, possibly the best way to do this would be look at the Chicago statement and then look at De Verbum, which is the Catholic statement. In many ways, you have virtually identical commitments to a high view of scripture that takes scripture seriously within an orthodox framework. And I think that that is the most exciting thing we can be doing because then we're not writing in those silos. We're writing from a specific place for the whole body of Christ in communion with the saints, not only across continents, but across the ages. 
Yeah, I appreciate that that bringing in of the Roman Catholic tradition. You know, I think sometimes we think uh, that we're still 500 years back in the Reformation. It's like, you know, time has changed a lot. Both traditions have changed quite, quite a bit. And John, I feel like where you, were, where you were going with it reminded me of your chapter in the book where you were talking about love and love within the community of saints. And it, it, I'm going to sort of rephrase and quote kind of a, a mix here, but you're saying, you know, works are not proof of salvation, but the participatory means of appropriating its benefits. So you say faith at, at work through love transforms individuals and the church into the image of the God who is love. And so mm. maybe we can just continue a little bit with you and take just a couple minutes to um, dig into your chapter, which centered around love as as we just said, not just, oh, I'm saved, so now I love, but love is the means of entering into it. I think that's central to if we are going to truly be the universal body of Christ across time and space, that seems central. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is when you talk about spiritual formation. It, it, what we're actually saying is, as Protestant Christians and as Catholics and Christians across the, the scope of the historic faith. What does it mean to become transformed in the image of God, conformed to the image of the Son, as Roman says? And the thing that that I felt as, as an evangelical Protestant and as an Anglican was that a lot of times it will be like, well, works, we certainly don't earn salvation, and I would affirm that. Works certainly don't establish justification. But this sort of aversion to uh, sanctification, as if that's some sort of secondary thing, and that's getting a little Catholic. Uh, so let's that's their thing over there. We're, we're justified by faith alone, and and the justification by faith alone is essential to the gospel. But it's meant to be part of a broader orb where God not only declares us righteous but conforms us to His image. And that internal part there is what I was interested in in that chapter through looking at it in Ephesians. And so the idea is, as I engage with Aquinas' work and some work in Calvin and others, is that love, as you live out the Christian faith, transforms you. And that is important because you have to ask yourself, why does the church matter? Is it just a gathering of like-minded individuals in the same place to engage in theological content to be more correct? Well, the way I see the New Testament working is that theology is penultimate to doxology and encounter. Theology is the map when it is rightly ordered according to scripture that leads us to Jesus, rightly understood and rightly described and rightly engaged with and encountered. And when we encounter Jesus together as the church, locally and globally, we are transformed because we're living out the way of Jesus together. And I guess that for me, the important thing to just mention is for me, sanctification is a part of the total package of salvation by union with Christ. And so what is exciting to talk about is when we talk about spiritual formation as Protestants, it's not a subsidiary category. It's not a secondary thing. It's God's plan to complete God's work in God's people through God's spirit together. And that together part is the thing that um, I think is essential because you cannot love in isolation as you work on your own self, right? You can only love when there's an other to love which makes the church both terrifying and beautiful. 
Yeah. Well, it's so hard nowadays because we live in such an individualistic society and it's so common in, in upcoming generations who have seen the wrong things the church has done or have been personally hurt by Christians to sort of say, well, I don't, I don't do it with a body anymore. I just do it by myself. And I think on one level, I, I get the pain, but it seems central to the New Testament that we can only actually do this walk together. And actually, the very thing that they may be fighting against is then, and, and me, I've been there, right? I was a pastor. I was hurt. I didn't want to go to church anymore. I've, I've got it. But by walking away, we also then end up missing those voices that we need in our lives. It's like we, we, we actually need one another. It's not just a nice thing. It's like, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. And a transformative thing, right? It's, it's like, yeah, I totally agree with you, Phil. So as we, as we then grow, okay. So we're, it's important that we do this together and that's obviously what your project was working on. And I want to get into some of what that entails because you guys had some great chapters from people in cultures, very different than what many people listening to this podcast know, but spiritual formation, this whole thing of drawing closer to God and becoming like God, the word Ryan that you guys dove into was the beatific vision. And I think for a lot of people, they will say, okay, maybe I've heard that, but I have no idea what that is. But that was sort of another one of those pieces that, that stood out to me. Can you sort of define that? And then why that is, um, you know, at one point you talk about spiritual disciplines are theologically grounded in this vision. And that's what we do here at Ruiz Space is teach spiritual disciplines. So can you define it and then sort of explain that statement? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's such a loaded term. <clears throat> it's all co- also confusing uh, in many respects. So the beatific vision is talking about our end, our final end, in, in which we see God and are transformed. Um, and there's been a lot of different views of the beatific vision because obviously, just that one sentence sparks all kinds of questions. Uh, is it a physical sight? Is it a metaphor for knowledge of God? Is it knowing and loving God and perfect knowledge and love? Is it an actual sight of God, perhaps in the intermediate state? How does a soul see? Uh, how can God be seen? Right. So or answer them all. Answer all those exactly, questions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of fun um, discussion on this. And, uh, you know, obviously this is another book. But for those that are interested in, um, you know, a, a, an award winning book on this, Hans Borsma's Seeing God is such a classic now, already a classic. It's only like three years old, two years old or something <laughs> like that. That's right behind me, actually. Um, and so he goes through some of the historical debates and the ways of conceiving it. Uh, my approach, um, I'm not sure if I would want to be tagged down on all of these questions exactly, because it's not entirely clear, but my approach is to see all the Christian life as pointing forward and pointing to God. Everything in creation is, of course, created by God, and thus it reflects him, um, just like any artwork would reflect an artist. And so uh, just seeing all of creation, you think of the stars declaring God's glory. Um, you, you, you think of creation, something just a beautiful, majestic mountain pointing towards 
uh, the majesty and the power of God. And so honestly, it actually takes me back to what me got, what got me into spiritual formation in the first place. And that's the beatific vision. This chapter was originally coming out of a lot of my thoughts on contemplation and the spiritual practice of contemplation and, and contemplation um, referring to the rapt attention to God, this, um, this uh, just the sight of God in our own life. I, I, the, the best way to describe it to my students is to say contemplation is kind of what happens um, when you just see something so beautiful, you can't but stare at it. Mm. And it's kind of like a creepy, <laughs> it's this just stare, this gaze. And um, starting there and then realizing, oh, wow, our whole life is about seeing God, knowing and loving God more. And it turns out when you read scripture, this idea of seeing God in eternity is part of the topology. It's built into the very narrative where you have Moses asking and God giving it, but just his back, you know, you can see my back and Moses glows, you know, like you, you see the sight of God. And Moses is transformed, right? The image of glowing and, and this being picked up in Ezekiel, other prophets talking about the new heavens and new earth as a wedding feast and, and, and eating, drinking and seeing God, just like Moses with the elders in Israel. That, that's the language used even in the Old Testament, the sight of God. And then you have the Bible ending this way, where we all see God in the end of Revelation. And so when I was thinking, you know, what, what's a helpful way of putting spiritual formation together? Not the only way, but what's a helpful way to do it? I thought, why not start at the end? Um, this promise and hope that when, when he's revealed, we're going to see him for we will, we're going to be like him for we, we're going to see him as he is. Mm. Um, what a great mysterious promise. Um, I do tend to think there's an actual sight of God. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work, but given that Jesus redeems our humanity, glorifies our humanity, you can say deifies our humanity. I wouldn't be too shocked if there's, uh, that Jesus brings us the sight of God through his healing of humanity by taking up humanness in himself. Um, so I just thought as I was writing or as thinking of writing the chapter, how do I want to approach this? Well, I decided to approach it with the end in mind and sort of that's where, um, the spiritual disciplines come in. I think a lot of these spiritual disciplines are reminding us of who we really are. And often the spiritual disciplines are, uh, taking something very tangible, like food Fasting from it as a reminder of our, our own. So this is fasting, just as one example, just as a reminder of our neediness. Because when you take food away from me, I quick, I quickly recognize that I'm a needy, dependent creature, that I'm contingent, I'm not necessary, um, that God is what I need most. But when you take food away from me, now, now, now I have to remember, oh, wow, yeah, that's right. I need to eat. If I don't eat, I'm not okay. And it's a, it forces you to come to terms um, to, with your own humanity and with your own recognition of, well, sometimes I need to repent of my self-reliance, right? I'm an American. 
Um, I'm, I think I'm self-sufficient sometimes. And when I fast, I come to recognize, you know what? I'm not self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And I really think that um, I'm the center of my daily activities. But when you enter into the spiritual disciplines, you're, you're forced to come to terms with you're not your own Lord. You're not your own God. And it's one of the most comforting and terrifying things, like, like John mentioned with the church. It's, it's something that really speaks to me when I approach the spiritual disciplines in this way. It's something that you can't avoid anymore. Because if I just go through the habits of my life, as my culture tells me to, I'm going to come out on the other end of that thinking I'm self-sufficient. Yeah. But when I enter in the liturgy of life that God has us, uh, including all these spiritual disciplines, you see them all over scripture, you come out differently. You come out uh, in, in a good way, needy on the Lord, dependent on the Lord. And, and guess what? Now you can enter in and really understand what love is. Yeah. Um, so I started with the end in mind to kind of show why that was my intention, at least. Well, I like how it draws in to your normal, just mundane, everything life, right? Like at one point you said like the whole world becomes a lattice of signs that point believers back to the power and beauty of Christ. So it's in the everyday things that this vision ultimately of connecting with God, we begin to experience it in, in all the stuff. So like fasting, for example, you even mentioned deep dish pizza at one point, which I was really appreciative <laughs> because, yeah, because <laughs> if anything points us to the kingdom of God, it's, it's pizza, right? That's, that's 100% <laughs> there. But, you know, so you started to talk about fasting and I think this, is sort of where, um, you know, I don't think I'm drawing an imaginary thread, but you know, what, what John's chapter had talked about and what your chapter were talking about, if it's about seeing God and drawing closer to that vision, um, I think it was uh, John Coe in his chapter, he said something like no one group or culture can do the work of spiritual theology for every person, that ultimately the seeing of God it happens in communities that are localized in particular contexts, which means that what may work for me may not work in Australia or even in Arizona, let alone Africa or India or Europe or wherever it may be. And that's sort of the beauty of that body of Christ is opening up into all those different diversities of spiritual formation. So as you were sort of inviting people to write these different chapters and bringing in, you know, I think it was, and I may mispronounce his name, but uh, Jay Cabuena Asamoa Gayadu, um, talking about the, the, the Holy Spirit. And, and maybe both of you can talk about this aspect of it. People may be very uncomfortable if they were to see what he's talking about. So, so what's up with that, right? Like we're one spirit, we're one body, we're all trying to see God, but here's where that diversity and that difference comes in. Where do we go with those uncomfortable differences? Mm-hmm. Well, that, yeah, I mean, the chapter you mentioned, uh, Jake Wabena, um, I have to say that when I think about spiritual warfare now, I think in with an assortment of different variables and categories that are resourced from him. And there's a deep part of me with which that resonates. And so I say, to me, that makes me feel more connected 
to people who are experiencing things that because of my cultural setup, my plausibility structures as an American living in Australia, all these things I'm not tuned into, but that in fact are actually there. Um, and so the blessing that I get from listening as well as contributing uh, to this volume is, is kind of encapsulated in, in that chapter because you know he's talking about different ways in which in his culture, the spirit is seen to enter in the d- demonic aspects and these things. And these things can make people feel uncomfortable um, to talk about, uh, but it's because we, we may not be experiencing them in the same way that other cultures would. And I don't think it's this naive sort of assumption that we just need to accept everything from everywhere because it's it's different perspective from us. But I view it as sort of a, a way of listening that helps my theology actually be part of what the saints have always, the church has always talked about as the communion of saints. Is there a deep desire in us to be part of that communion? Is there a deep desire to pursue the unity that Jesus has for us, not only ecclesially, but in terms of the way we do theology, you know, the bishops of the church in the early church were theologians. <laughs> They're the ones we read about now doing theology and their theology. It wasn't so much that Augustine was always right hundred percent of the time, but that as you're listening to the global ancient church is, is there a, a parallel to that in the, the church today? And so the chapter you mentioned was, was pivotal for me. Another one was hearing about theological, um, education in different cultures. In America, we think, well, this is how I was um, educated, and this is how theology and theological education will always be. But the reality is, and we all know this underneath, that things are changing in theological education. And if you're not out ahead of that and very attuned to that and aware of the cultural aspects of that, you may be doing theological education in a way that is either 20 years old or is totally blind to the cultural missional needs of the church, uh, particularly in America, right? I mean, uh, in Australia, it's a little bit different, um, not to get up on my soapbox, but in Australia, when you take, <laughs> it, when you take a degree, um, you know, you're not crushed by the weight of student loan debt. In America, you take a degree and it's like, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, that can be very crushing to a lot of different people. Um, and is that a missional decision for the church? And are there other ways to do that? What we saw in Sam, Sammy's chapter, uh, Samuel Faro, and what we saw in other chapters in the book as well, um, uh, Bishop Owa from um, Africa, an Anglican bishop, different models of theological education and what that looks like as the church, different levels of theological education. And again, you're reading about that in a book on spiritual formation. This is because I think there's a deep sense that Protestantism particularly really needs, that when we're doing theology, it's not just to collect factoids about God. We're doing theology to create a map to lead us to what Ryan talks about as the beatific vision. Now, I have a little psychoanalysis. I think that the reason that Ryan is into astronomy is because he's actually looking for the beatific vision in outer space. (laughs) There's actually some truth to that. He's, He's searching really... night after night in the desert. <laughs> Lord, are you there? There is a nebula that kind of looks like looks like a witch's uh, yeah. silhouette. Um, and Phil tried to take a degree in this. Yeah. I don't, I, 
knowing that he was searching for the beatific vision. Friend, they can't be found in telescopes. They can only be found through the word of God. So we need to start talking about how this makes us feel. I think this is more therapy now. We need to pull yes. some of this out. A theology of telescopes. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's good stuff. No, he's not actually wrong. Um, I got into astronomy when I was a kid. Oh, and I got a telescope for Christmas. I can't Here remember. come the heresies. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the first time I saw Jupiter and Saturn, I was just mesmerized. And um, when I became an adult, I'm like, wait a second, I can buy a better <laughs> telescope. And so, um, yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a hobby now. But, but yes, yeah, sight um, yeah. is a reminder to me that... Um, we, we often are kind of changed into what we see. Um, you go out in the middle of nowhere and you look at stuff up in the stars and it's deafening quiet, right? Totally quiet. And you look mm. at just something that's beautiful, really far off, kind of mysterious. Your heart slows. Yeah. Your, your anxieties go away a, a little bit or all the way. A, a new rhythm develops. So I started kind of noticing this correlation between sight and uh experience yeah. so yeah there's something to it that's how i got into the beatific vision it was via contemplation via mm -hmm. my interest in astronomy as a kid so he's not wrong but i'm not actually <laughs> trying to see god in nebula you know it's a lot deeper than that right you ought to come to australia um i mean oh, we yeah. went camping a couple months ago in the middle of winter in australia which is not cold compared to the east coast of the united states where i grew up and it was just, I was thinking of my friends who are into, I mean, I also look, I believe the Psalms teach and the Bible teaches that the, the universe testifies and the cosmos testifies to the creator and the glory and majesty of the creator. And it floods your hearts with religious affection. And, mm -hmm. and then the gospel kind of completes that by redirecting that attention to Jesus. Um, but uh, man, if you guys ever get a chance to, to come out to uh, Queensland, this there's some cheap campgrounds where you can see every star in the sky. Yeah, we we just traveled actually on Saturday. We have to go an, um, an hour and a half outside of Phoenix, and it is black. Uh, mm -hmm. See every it seems like every star of the Milky Way. <laughs> so that's, that's what we do. But it's uh, it used to be a monthly thing. It's hard with a toddler, so now it's like <laughs> when it works. <laughs> see, but I, I I even love within that see that. You know, the three of us culturally, um, for all intents and purposes, are more similar than we are, are different, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, yet, even within our individuality, we connect with God in different ways. Different things will speak to us. So just, just imagine what that means then across cultures, people who, who don't even speak the same language, people across thousands of years of time. And, and both of you sort of are speaking to, to how do I, that beatific vision, how do I draw closer to seeing God? And, and John mentioned, you know, learning from someone from a completely different culture and part of the world saying, yeah, that actually like opens up to maybe see this, this the spirit's movement in, in a slightly different way. And that to me is one of the beautiful invitations of this book is saying, you know, someone in a different culture the, the spirit may actually work differently there because of what they're facing. And, and I mean, John, I know you brought up, you know, uh, the demonic presence and those different things that maybe it doesn't manifest in the United States and Australia in the same ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was, you know, thinking to, his chapter really spoke to me, Quabina's chapter as well. 
Um, and I was also thinking of, you know, all these enlightenment categories that the West gives us to perceive things rationally, which have a bigger explanation than just something that's physical. Um, so I think we Westerners have a lot of false dichotomies and one of them might be, uh, well, just because you can medicate something, uh, you know, just because there's not a physical explanation to something doesn't mean that there's not also a spiritual one simultaneous. And so I think his chapter really exposed a lot of false thinking that we Westerners bring and that they rightly perceive, you know, the scriptural basis that, that there's something more going on here. The battle's not against flesh and blood, Paul says. The battle mm -hmm. is something that's unseen ultimately. And, um, and, and we have these categories that are just flesh and blood in the West. And we think we can reduce it to the flesh and blood. So then we don't see what's also there. That's kind of how I, that's how it spoke to me because I actually think the spirit's probably working in, a, in the, I don't, I'm not going to say the same way, but I think a lot of these things that we just rationalize, we move on without actually realizing that like, there's a, a dual plane, dual level explanation mm. going on here. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know that that it, it was a fantastic contribution. And Ryan, did you? And I don't know, Phil, when you read it, but for me, this idea of, for instance, Corbin was talking about the demonic accessing. And I know for some people, they go demonic. Oh my goodness, um, stop talking about this. But the demonic accessing, you know, the human person through eyes or ears or other, mm -hmm. you know, human body parts and those sort of things. And and I, just that small picture of the way of thinking from his experience, when we bring that into an American context, an Australian context, Western, whatever you want to call it, um, it strikes me that we in, in some of our churches will, will spiritualize a demonology to be like, well, there's demons out there, little, yeah. little mini orcs running around. And we need to, you know, if something goes wrong, we pray against those, those demons that, you know, we're thinking like Halloween sort of thing. Uh, like what does the demon look like, you know, all this sort of stuff and they're external, but they don't work through human sources. But it strikes me that there's categories that we've used to talk about like Walter Wink's demonology in the West, where we've talked about like demonic works through things to affect human beings. So when I use my eyes to view material that's destructive to the human soul and that depletes the beatific vision, that is, that is as much demonic as, you know, so-and-so whatever demon legion or whatever. Uh, when I use my ears to uh, fill it with the talking heads of, of the ex extremes of social media and different news networks, and then end up, oh my goodness, recapitulating their entire ethos and putting it in a Jesus costume, the Christian left, the Christian right. Um, and it's people throwing theological grenades at each other that look identical to the polarities that we experience in the world. That's not just metaphorically demonic, that is the negative evil aspects of the world, which exist and which can be personified even, accessing humanity through the medium of hearing and vision. And so if I'm not engaging with that in categories that I haven't been accustomed to, I will tend to, in my theological experience as a kind of reformedish Anglican evangelical, either conceptualize and cognitivize the demonic, as if demons are bad, I must pray against them. But that has nothing to do with all the systems and structures of the world and my mm. experience of the world. 
or I'll become overly Gnostic in my spirituality where like demons are floating everywhere <laughs> uh, and I'll pray against them. And that's a huge part of my spirituality, but they have nothing to do with the physical, you know, um, mediums of exposure to human uh, discourse. And I think that, you know, what a chapter like that shows us is that, man, we, we better start listening with the global church rather than uh, trying to define all of our categories to which we experience the realities that truly exist in scripture, which I think what Ryan talks about, flesh and blood is not what we fight against, but the, uh, the cosmic powers of darkness in the spiritual realms. Yeah, I feel a little bit like, you know, if our vision of God is going to be clear, when we gain in those other perspectives, it's almost like different veils that are being lifted that help us see from a new angle and something that might seem so outlandish to us as, as John, you just walked us through perfectly all of a sudden, when we get behind the thing, we start to realize, Oh my goodness, that's where maybe it's present here. And so that's again, why I think this is so timely and so needed because for us to be the body of Christ and draw closer to God, I, I think what you're talking about is, is central. So I would love to talk to you both about this forever. Um, I, I will simply say to people that we've only begun to scratch the surface of the book and it's, I highly recommend going and checking out the whole thing, but maybe what are some questions based on the whole project that you've done? What are some questions people should maybe be asking themselves or practices they should partake in to actually begin to do the things that you're talking about in this book? Yeah, that's good. I think start really simply. Um, I think sometimes, um, you know, over planning this or overdoing it, coming in with all these high hopes and expectations can be the worst and most crushing thing you can do. So I, I often will encourage uh, students and people in church who haven't really thought about this before, who haven't really they pray, they read the Bible, but they're not really intentional otherwise. I would say just start simple. And um, something I picked up from a theologian today, Thomas Joseph White, are this idea of just practicing hope. So here's a new spiritual discipline, um, mm. acts of hope, just uh, what, seven times a day, something, choose a number, maybe every other hour, where you just intentionally set aside five minutes and you just give that five minutes to God intentionally as an act of hope, because it can be a hopeless world sometimes. Sometimes we're, we're, we're in more despair than we realize. Sometimes it's hard to take the next step. Uh, sometimes we're just so focused on the past we don't want to. But just, you know, giving that and saying, you know, Jesus, I love you. I hope in you. Be my hope. Be my strength. And really simple prayer and, and make you know, when you practice this uh, so many times, eventually it becomes a habit. It's a discipline. Uh, before you know it, you, you end up being somebody um, who's a person of hope, you know, who's always, you know, uh, sort of hugging on to Jesus going, you are, you are central. You're the reason for this and kind of giving up your own um, anxiety, moving, moving towards Christ in that. So I, I would just say, how is it that, that you need to hear 
God in your life right now? Where is it that you need to hear? Where maybe are you not hearing? Sometimes where spiritual ears tune in on Sundays, maybe they tune in on some other days, maybe they tune in whenever we open scripture, but then we tune out God when we go to our eight to five shift, we tune out God when we go to a party with friends, and we just kind of have this weird separation of God with the rest of our life, and where is it that God's actually speaking to you and you're just sort of tuned out you're 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 you're, you're the frequency's not hitting you um so i think just keeping it simple and, and and turning um each day every other hour into just this moment this act of hope it it's intentional it's hard it's really it cuts against the grain of everything within you because you know we're like adam and eve we want to be your own god um, but that's the point of it. And that's the beauty of it. I, I often will say, just start there. It, it, it's life-changing and then go to the, you know, and then all the other things that are going on, uh, that we're talking about too, but start simple. Absolutely. Mm. That's great, Ryan. And I would just say, uh, just in conclusion from my own thoughts, um, I think one of the things that keeps coming up in this book and other books that, I'm working on and the desires of my heart and the desires of the hearts of many people I know who follow Jesus is to ask the question, is the church worth it? Is the church everything? Is the church what I need to have Jesus in his fullness? And do I have Jesus in a deficient way because I have him in exclusion from the other? The depths of my heart want to grow in the next 10 years more deeply in this sense that without my co-communicant status as a Christian, as part of the communion of saints, without my like forsaking of individualism for this integration into Christ's body, I will not be formed in the image of Jesus. And I think one of the things that the church in every denomination and every stream can benefit from is how do we actually not only see that beautiful vision, but live that out in all of its, uh, all of its scariness and all of its stepping on each other's toes and all of the wounds that we have. But my sense is that as we do that, as the local church and as networks and as nominations and all those things, the heart of Jesus and the message of the gospel will be renewing us through each other because without each other, we have Jesus at a detriment, but with each other, we have Jesus in his fullness. And my prayer really is that as folks read this book, whatever individual practices you come up with, and I come up with, that God would be leading us to a, a deeper unity based in the apostolic faith, uh, where we can say we not only belong to the local community of Christ, but our hearts long to be connected to the global community of Christ. Mm. Um, and in whatever ways God can do that little or small, that's a small step in the direction of seeing and knowing Jesus more. Uh, we, we often don't run in, you know, these big marathon races. We fall and stumble and are clawing our way along the path of sanctification. But my sincere prayer and joy is that even in this conversation together, maybe God will be stirring up things in our hearts and in our families and the people around us, we would just experience Jesus more through a desire and longing to be connected to one another and through that connection to love our neighbor, invite them into that. Hmm. And to see this isn't a dream. This isn't a pipe dream. This is the gospel promise. And it's about time we as the church started publishing like that and living like that in communities. 
so I want to, I'll be praying for anyone who's listening to this, just a blanket prayer and um, with, with deep conviction that, um, that Jesus is in the midst of it all. Mm. Amen to both of those uh, concluding words. John, if people want to go deeper with you and the work that you do, where can they find you? Where can they connect? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm out here in Australia. Um, so um, here's a big website. Need a boat. Give it to yeah. <laughs> the borders are going to be open. So come on in. I got an empty room. You can all say trinity.qld.edu.au. And we'll put that. I'll give that to you, Phil. Um, and there's uh, something there called Trinity on Tap, which is a New Testament free course. It's totally free, free workbook and stuff. And I'd invite you to, to do that, especially in, um, if you're looking to engage with an introduction to the New Testament and how some of this can pan out across how we read the Bible, things like that. So I invite you to do that um, um, if you want to know more about sort of the work we're doing here and the work that I'm doing. Absolutely. And Ryan, where can people find you? Well, you can, you can Google me. Um, there's nothing special. John has a nice uh, special destination for you. There's nothing like that on my end, but you can Google me over at Grand Canyon University and I'm just doing my thing on a daily basis, uh, generally keeping to myself, my local church and, and, and uh, having fun trying to collaborate and bring together a diverse global voices in these projects. Um, that's, mm. that's, that's just kind of how I feel called it uh, right now. So, but yeah, no, no special landing pad. But, well, that is a worthwhile work, and I thank you both for the work you did on this, for your chapters, for the collaboration. Um, I, I really enjoyed this, and hey, thank you so much for making this work, bringing you both together in the podcast at the same time. This was a blessing. Thank you so much. Well, we appreciate Thanks. it, Bill. It was a lot of fun. Blessings, everybody. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you for joining us in this episode today. I pray that something was challenging and encouraging to you in your walk of faith. You can find the book on Amazon in the link in the description below. So I highly recommend going and checking that out, going even deeper with the book that they have written. And then friends, if you enjoyed this episode and have been blessed by the Rua Space podcast and ministry, we would love to have you join us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you can help support the ministry and gain access to some really great exclusive content that we offer there. And if you're looking for ways to go deeper in your faith with spiritual formation, spiritual discipline, looking for the voice of God and the movement of the spirit in your life, I now offer one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction, spiritual coaching. This is a space where we dig into your story and find out how you can go deeper with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. So you can find that as well in the link below where you can set up a free call just to talk about if spiritual direction would be right for you. And then find Finally, friends, we also offer our Christ-centered yoga and guided spiritual disciplines membership. So you can also find that in the link below in the description. You can get a free trial right there to test it out. Just different practices to help you bring your whole self into the prayer meditation experience. So thank you again, friends, for being with us today. Until next time, grace and peace be with you.